In the following live session recording, Mike Griffin, Public Affairs Representative for the Georgia Baptist Mission Board, talks about the relevance of religious liberty to the priority of evangelism and missions. This session is about the theological and philosophical approach that churches should have regarding the rights of religious liberty in our country. Its goal is to help church leaders leave with practical understanding that promotes evangelism and missions. Let's join Mike now. All right, let me, uh, most of you already know who I am, some of you already been in some of my classes, but I'm Mike Griffin, the Public Affairs Representative for the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. Uh, I have been down at the Capitol as a lobbyist uh, for 12 years. Uh, eight of those years with Georgia Right to Life, six of them with Georgia Baptist. Two of those years I represented both entities. Um, I've been a Georgia Baptist pastor for 35 years in the state continuously. I'm still pastoring Liberty Baptist up in northeast Georgia, Harville, uh, Georgia. I was born and raised in the southwest corner of the state in Thomasville, Georgia. So I'm just old South Georgia redneck. Um, Graduated from uh, what is now called Baptist College of Florida down in Graceville, Florida. Um, ran for state representative in 06. Kind of makes me a rare bird. I lost and in 07. George Wright like hired me in 08. I started working at the Capitol. And um, so that's kind of my, my roots and, and background on that. Let's talk a little bit about what we're going to look at today. This lesson is about the theological and the philosophical approach that churches should have regarding the rights of religious liberty in our country. Uh, its goal is to help church leaders lead with a practical understanding that promotes evangelism and missions. I want to start with these passages because I want people to understand that while we believe in religious liberty and uh, the preeminence of that in all that we do, that is not to the neglect of the fact that God calls us to obey and honor governmental authority. This passage is pretty good because it, it helps us to see, it says that every soul is to be subject to the higher powers, for there's no power but God, and the powers that be are, are ordained of God. So if you look at, at Romans 13, it helps lay out before us the three institutions that God's given to govern our planet, the home, the church, and of course, civil government. Then we go to the passage in Peter where it says, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, <clears throat> honor the king. And then in Mark, and that's the passage everybody remembers the most, Jesus answering unto them, he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. They tried to you know, trick him on the money issue. Now, while all this is true, uh, we do have an obligation before God to obey those who rule over us in civil authority. However, in the video I'm going to show you here in just a moment, we must not forget that God's authority does trump government's authority. Meaning, if you get put in a place where you've either got to obey God or man or government, guess what? God, God always trumps government if the two are placed in a position such as that. I want you to see there was such a time, even in the state of Georgia, when religious liberty was at issue. I want you to see this video. Martha, 
I am grateful for your willingness to follow me as I follow the Lord. This journey hasn't been easy. I want you to know that I am confident that your sacrifice will bring glory to Christ. Come on. My heart yearns to fulfill the Great Commission. May the Lord bless our ministry wherever He leads us. Daniel Marshall, the founder of Coyote, was born in 1706 in Windsor, Connecticut of Presbyterian parents. After being converted at the age of 20, he served as a deacon of the First Church of Windsor for 20 years. Then at the age of 48, Daniel Marshall became a Baptist and was baptized by immersion. Four years later, he was ordained as pastor and set about the gigantic task of evangelizing the southern area of the country. His journeys took him down the East Coast through settlements in Virginia and then North Carolina. And then in 1762, Marshall and his family came to Stevens Creek, South Carolina. In less than 10 years, he established eight churches and laid the groundwork for countless others. From there, he began his work in Georgia. On one of his visits to Georgia, around 1770, Daniel Marshall was on his knees in prayer as he conducted public worship. Suddenly, heavy hands were felt on his shoulders, and a young constable arrested Marshall. Well, Anyone here provide security for this man and ensure that he appears in Augusta Monday henceforth his trial? I will. The young constable temporarily released him into the custody of a gentleman who promised to ensure Marshall's appearance at his trial. Mrs. Marshall was indignant about the proceedings and rose to denounce such a law. She supported her position by quoting several texts of scripture with much force. Martha's inspired entreaty was so convincing that the constable himself was converted. Mrs. Marshall was also present in Augusta for her husband's trial on the following Monday. A colonel presided with a parson of the Church of England. The trial began when the parson commanded the prisoner to read a chapter of the Bible. Now, Marshall was not known for his eloquence. In fact, one friend described him as a weak man, a stammerer, and no scholar. While Marshall was a man of little education, he was known for his earnestness and holy zeal. When Daniel Marshall finished reading from Scripture, the parson berated him severely and ordered him to desist from preaching in St. Paul's parish. He can't even read. You are hereby ordered to cease preaching in the parish of St. Paul. Whether it be right to obey God rather than men, judge he. Marshall was released, and soon thereafter, in direct defiance of the law, the 65-year-old preacher moved his family across the Savannah River and settled in what is now Columbia County, Georgia. Here he served the remainder of his life obeying God rather than men. Soon after the trial, religious persecution ended in the Augusta area. Daniel Marshall organized Georgia's first Baptist church in the spring of 1772 on Big Coyote Creek. In the 78th year of his life, Daniel Marshall died. His son Abraham recorded his last words. Your brethren and sisters, I've just gone. This night I shall probably expire. But I have nothing to fear. I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. It's for this laid up for me. A crown of righteousness. With his very last breath, Daniel Marshall addressed his son Abraham. This same son succeeded him in the pulpit at Kaoki, where he preached faithfully for many years. Marshall's grandson, Jabez, followed his father Abraham as Kaoki's pastor, 
leaving a 61-year family legacy of ministry in this place. This old Kaioki building was erected in 1808, 26 years after Daniel Marshall's death. It is probably the third building. The first structure by Daniel Marshall was most likely a log church with primitive benches and a pungent floor, but it could have been a frame building. It was in this first building that Daniel Marshall closed his fruitful life as pastor, preaching the gospel faithfully until his death in 1784. So, as you will see, we have an example with this pastor who was willing to stand up no matter what. And what was so interesting was that the constable ended up getting saved out of the whole ordeal. And this monument is at the church today. It's in Appling, Georgia, which is in Columbia County near Augusta. I don't know if any of you know where that is. But there's this marble, marble marker that's there that relates the story that you just saw on the video talking about what happened that day and how he was willing to still stand for what was right, even though the government authorities were telling him he couldn't preach anymore. So it's happened right here in the state of Georgia. And so the passage that he was referring to when they were telling the apostles not to preach or teach anymore in Jesus' name, they said, well, we ought to obey God rather than man. And so the basic premise is you do what you got to do that's fine, but we're going to do what we got to do. And you know, the apostles, they all understood that they could not cease to talk about the things that they had seen and heard in Christ. And you know, that was one of the marked characteristics of the disciples as they, the apostles as they went out, was that people recognized them as having been with Jesus. They, that was just a part of them. So, you know, it's like walking up to a dog and saying, you can't bark anymore. I mean, I, that's the nature of a dog is to bark. And the nature of a person that is saved is to share their faith. Because, you know, we're not only called to witness, but when we get saved, we become a witness. I mean, just by the very nature of Christ within us, it ought not be but just a matter of time until somebody squeezes us and some Jesus come out somewhere in your life. And so that's the importance of religious liberty. Now, what I want to do in this class is I want to take what I call a First Chronicles 12.32 approach. Matter of fact, you see it on the banner. If you're in my last class, it's one of my key verses in why and what I do. And that is to try to understand the times in relationship to religious liberty. Do we understand what's going on? And what is it that we need to do as Christians to stand up for religious liberty? You can see our forefathers who went before us and those the pilgrims that came over came over for the purpose of religious liberty. I mean, that was a whole establishment of our country was basically founded on that First Amendment, the whole purpose for our being here. And yet, it is at the very essence of what is at stake today in our country. So what I want to do is talk about what Christians need to know about the importance of defending religious liberty today. I want to talk about what is needed uh, to defend it. And I want to talk about, most importantly, how religious liberty connects to evangelism and, and ministry uh, and missions. So I want to look at five basic points that I want you to see. And the first point is to talk about the scope of religious liberty. So when we talk about the scope of religious liberty, we see that the First Amendment was not designed to restrict the practice of religion to the confines of a church building. Now this is very key. 
And that's why I want you to note with me the First Amendment. Most people are not aware of what is in the First Amendment. But the very beginning of it says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I want you to note that phrase, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. The point needs to be made that the wall of separation implied here was a law of separation, was a wall of separation to keep, listen to this, the state from the church, not the church from the state. And that separation was of a separation of ecclesiology, that is the church from government, not theology from government. For example, every preamble that we have in every state constitution, and there are 50 states, and there are 50 constitutions, there are 50 preambles. Every preamble acknowledges God as being the one behind the establishment of that state. And so, while there was a separation of, of state and church, our country never separated itself from monotheism, from God, from the one true God, the Creator. And so we see that in our own Constitution. And so we go back to that phrase, the free exercise thereof. So the bottom line is that the freedom of religion in this country is not just a freedom to worship on a particular day. Because that phrase is showing the free exercise thereof. Our religious freedom is not restricted to a particular place. It's not restricted to a particular religion, such as a state-sanctioned or approved kind of religion. Freedom of religion is not just the right to believe certain things in your head. It's a right to behave certain ways in your everyday life. The First Amendment is not confined to private worship, but to public practice. And so, let me tell you why all this is true. It's true because obeying God, listen to this, is not confined to a certain day. Obeying God is not just something you do uh, in a certain place. Obeying God is not something that you just do in a certain building. Freedom of religion is to be as inclusive as obeying God is. And so God is sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-present. We serve the Lord wherever we are because God's everywhere we go. (laughs) And if we know Christ as the Lord and Savior, He's in us, not only in us, but He's wherever we're going. We can't go too high that God's not there. We can't go down to the deepest part of the sea that God's not there. So religious liberty by the very nature that is related to God is not something that's exclusive to just somewhere or to something or some time. It's to be everywhere, and that's exactly what the founding fathers understood. Which brings us to the second point, and that is the conscience of religious liberty. And we talk about the conscience. Here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the underlying premise of religious liberty is that the government government should not set itself up or attempt to set itself up as Lord of the conscience. You see, the founding fathers knew that government was never to try to tell us what to believe or what we cannot believe. It's absolutely the beauty of the First Amendment as citizens. Here's the good deal. We can worship who? We can worship what? We can worship where? We can worship when? 
you want to, listen, or you can not worship at all. Um, this is your conscientious right. Now, we talk about the government not being the Lord of the conscience or our conscientious right. What do we mean by that? Well, the first thing we mean is that uh, there is a court higher than the Supreme Court. Did you know that the nine robed justices are going to have to answer to God one day? I mean, you know, they may set the laws, but their laws can't trump God. Someone put it this way one time when they said, government may be my uncle, but look, it can never be my heavenly father. Of course, you know, Uncle Sam. So, I mean, so anyway, the reason this is true, well, it's because there's a court higher than the Supreme Court. The second reason is that it means that every freedom we have is based upon the first freedom of religion. And when we talk about the freedom of religion, let, let me give you another phrase of understanding what the freedom of religion is. It's the freedom of conscience. In other words, freedom of speech. If you go back and look at all those other rights that are in the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom of petition the government, the right to bear arms if you go into the Second Amendment, are not needed if there's not the right to the freedom of religion or what we call the freedom of conscience. In other words, there's no need to defend anything if you don't have the right to believe anything or to live anything. I mean, I've had people tell me, you know, the Second Amendment is more important than the First Amendment. Well, if you don't have the First Amendment, there's no reason to have the Second Amendment. If you don't have a freedom to believe, uh, a freedom of conscience, and uh, so that brings us to the third point, and that is this. The freedom of religion is the key to the right to be able to communicate the gospel in public. You see, it's the First Amendment, the freedom of religion in our country, that gives us the right to appeal to the conscience that in return gives leeway to conversion. In other words, you can't have conversion until the conscience is stirred. Again, freedom to choose whether or not we are going to follow God you have to have your conscience stirred, which comes from God and not from man. Man does not give us the right to choose. God's the one that tells us we can choose. He comes up. He comes up with. He came up with the idea of the right of choice. I mean, even John three sixteen says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him." So He's the one that came up with this whole thing, and so all this. It's so very important. Why? Well, it's because authentic choice is key to authentic belief. And that's the same way when it comes to loving somebody. You can't force somebody to love you. I mean, it's just not going to happen. It has to be the freedom of the will to be able to choose to love someone. It's, you can't call it love if you're being forced. I know you say, well, the Lord says we're obeyed. We're supposed to, he, he commands us to love him and love one another. But let me just say something. It's our relationship with Christ that fuels the love that enables us to be obedient. I mean, that's where it comes from. That's to show us that when we're not loving like we ought to, then we're not following God like we should. But it's not something that's being coerced upon us. It's a change of heart and mind that takes place. Uh, authentic Christianity is not that which is on the outside that changes the inside. Authentic Christianity is that which has been changed on the inside and it reflects itself on the outside. That's why the First Amendment has the free exercise thereof. It's to live that out. 
And even James says, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works, his faith is dead. And so it's all commensurate with what we believe about the freedom of the will. But then the third thing is the principle of religious liberty. And we talk about the principle of religious liberty. It's based on the order that exalts God. So we look at the order of religious liberty. In other words, what does that order look like when it's being respected? If we don't know what it's supposed to look like, then we, don't, we won't know it when it's wrong. So we've got to look at what it's supposed to be. Well, the order is what? Well, it starts out with God. God's always first. I mean, the Ten Commandments, God is first. No other gods before me. Secondly, then there's man. Man is always second. God, others second. But then look at this. Third is government. Government is to be last. Now, what do you think that order is like when religious liberty is not being respected, when conscientious rights are not being respected? When it's being denied, guess what? Government is number one. And my daughter, who was in a uh, young Republican college group years ago, uh, was telling me, you know, Dad, those kids all believe that the government determines what their rights are. But, you know, when we look at the Declaration of Independence, we, we realize that our founding fathers said that our rights come from God. Government's responsibility is to protect those rights. But when it's perverted, you got government first, you got man second, and God ends up, if he's even on the list at all, he's listed as last. So, again, we look at our Declaration of Independence, we hold these things to be self-evident. All men were created. Apparently they didn't believe in evolution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, so right there. Created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or in the 14th Amendment, it changed it to property rights. Which basically, that meant the same thing. That, that was just, they just didn't put it there. But it meant life, liberty, and the ability to own property. I want you to notice that there's an order here. You don't start with this because if you ain't alive, you can't have that. If you don't have liberty, you can't pursue happiness, property, go out and earn a living, enjoy the fruits of your labor, and you don't, will never have liberty if you're not alive. That's why the right to life is the first right inside the mother's womb, the right to life. Um, and so, so the point here is that our unalienable rights, and now what does that mean, unalienable rights? That means those that cannot be denied or taken away. Why? Because they're conferred by God, not government. And so here's the point. Our rights come from God. So the government's responsibility is to protect our rights, not to determine what our rights are. If I could just get that understood in college campuses today, that would be tremendous. Uh, because when you deny that there is a God, so then, then somebody else is going to end up being made a God. Either you or your God, the government's your God, um, somebody's always telling somebody what to do. And you're going to look to the Lord, you're going to look to yourself. 
Ronald Reagan talked about the importance of the life issue when he said we cannot diminish the value of one category of human life, the unborn, without diminishing the value of all human life. That, that's true not just in the category of human life, but it's true in the category of liberty. It's true in the category of property rights. When you begin to deny the right to life, you will infringe on liberty, you will infringe on people's property. When you infringe on the right to life in the womb, it's just a matter of time till you deny the right to life outside of the womb. And so you now have people advocating for what they are calling afterbirth abortion. That means you kill the baby after it comes out of the mother's womb. And their point is what difference does three inches make? And that's the point that Christians make. Yeah, the point is there is no difference. A baby outside the womb is the same as a baby in the womb. If you're not supposed to kill a baby outside the womb, you shouldn't kill a baby in the womb. They're saying if you can justify killing a baby in the womb for some fetal abnormality that doesn't meet some compatible life, incompatible with life ethic, then what's the difference in killing a child outside the womb when you can do better testing to determine if they're not worthy of living? That's a form of utilitarianism. The greatest good for the greatest number. It's a form of eugenics. You weed out the weeds of society. You get rid of the people that you don't want to have too many of. Whether it's race, gender, sex, physical problems. You don't want these people alive. You don't want anybody that uh, is a trisomy. You don't want any dwarfism out there. So those people no longer meet the standard of being worthy of life. The real standard of life is Imago Dei. That means created in the image of God. It means every single person is intrinsically valuable. Not so much that they're valuable, but because of the value that God has placed in them because He is a part of them. Even in our sin nature, even as sinners, we still bear the imagery of God, which can be redeemed with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But still we respect one another because we respect God. Now, why are people not treating other people better? We'll tell you why, because they don't believe there's a God. Because believe me, our, our, our vertical relationship impacts our horizontal. And we get right with God, it impacts the way we deal with other people. I thought I'd throw that little sermon in there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and like you said, but if they're willing to kill the babies outside the room because of defects and things like that, then where does it stop there? They give to the older generation. Right, it's a wound to two. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, same thing with like Obamacare. Uh, one of the officials came out that said uh, was 70-something was to be like the age that you don't do any extensive surgeries. You do pretty much palatable care where you're just trying to keep somebody comfortable. So they basically have treated us like a carton of eggs or a milk carton. You've got an expiration date. So you reach a certain date, we're just going to make you feel comfortable. Because we now have become God. We determine who's valuable who has meaning, who has purpose. And so like he said, when you get on that, then you're just heading down a slippery slope. But you think about it, when you violate the sanctity of a mother's womb, is there anywhere that is more protective and safe for a human being than to be in its mother's womb? Well, when that's violated, nowhere's safe. And nobody's safe. And the value of human life is diminished when you devalue one category, devalue one category, it devalues all categories. 
So we talk about the freedom of, re of religious liberty, which is sort of a redundancy, because sometimes you see religious freedom, uh, the word freedom instead of liberty. But I want to, I want to use this. What, what is the freedom of religious freedom? Well, the freedom of religious freedom uh, it, it is this. Let's see. I got right there. Uh, the defense of religious liberty is not the same thing as promoting uh, religious or moral relativism. And the point I want to make here is that some Christians are afraid of promoting strong religious liberty rights for the fear that it's going to promote that all religions are the same and all morality is relative to the culture. And that's just simply not true. Uh, I've seen the false claim made against the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is nothing but a, a court standard of, of strict scrutiny rather than intermediate scrutiny used in religious liberty cases, that if we pass a Religious Freedom Restoration Act in the state of Georgia, we will be promoting Sharia law. And we will be oppressed by other religions as well. But that's simply not true because the Religious Freedom Restoration Act just simply restores the original intent of what the First Amendment, as I've been explaining to you, is all about anyway. Public health and safety always draws a line in there. Conscientious rights for you to not have to obey what somebody else tells you to do, even within your religious scheme, schematic that you're a part of, you still have the authority to say, no, I don't want to do that. I mean, they may reject you, but you don't, you don't have to do what anybody tells you to do from that perspective. And so... Uh, or they're also saying if we pass, promote religious liberty anymore, it's, it said that uh, promoting rights for people to believe their own moral convictions will lead to uh, demanding moral relativism in our country, and that's simply not true. We as Christians, uh, see I haven't pushed on. We as Christians have to understand that there's a difference. Listen to this in saying differences are accepted and differences are to be respected. I can respect your right to believe what you want to believe without having to believe it too. In other words, I can respect your right to differ with me without agreeing that you're right. And this is a big issue going on in our nation today. And one of the problems that we're seeing is that we've begun to label disagreement now as hate speech. And we're seeing what I call, and we talk about this in the other class, the God of the sexual revolution has become the supreme God in America today. A God that demands its rule over government, it wants its rule over politics, it wants its rule over, over culture as a whole, and we're seeing the God of political correctness enforcing censorship of speech. Uh, and ideas that conflict with its belief and agenda are being stifled. Matter of fact, you're seeing crazy things like uh, people beating up other people in protest now. And you know, the police are hardly even doing anything about it. And what they're basically saying by doing that is that the only reason I'm beating you up is because you believe what you believe. And it's not my fault. If you didn't believe it, I wouldn't have to do it. You talk about some perverted justice now. I mean, if you hadn't a I mean, you could, you could use that in a race situation. You could use that in anything. Well, if you wouldn't cause you what you were. If you, you, could, do, you could use that in sex. If you wasn't a woman, I wouldn't have beat you up, but you're a woman. You asked for it. Well, what do you mean? So I'm just saying, you're looking at a point where people 
are denying one another. We were looking at years ago when there was more cultural acceptance of moral, um, of a biblical morality, saying that that was stifling them, and all we want is tolerance. But now the people who say they want tolerance have now become the most intolerant people that there are in our country. And so there are two facts that we've got to get straight in our country. And the first one is this, is I don't have to agree with you in order to love you. Uh, I can still love you if we disagree. Matter of fact, agreement is not the premise for my loving you. Number two, if I disagree with you, it does not mean that I hate you. Uh, it does not mean that you necessarily hate me. I, I talked with an activist in the hallway. I believe it was last year or the year before last. And matter of fact, we were dealing with the hate crime bill. And I came in as Georgia Baptist. We have a resolution against it, and I spoke against it. And um, uh, people didn't like that. And I met this activist out in the hall, and I said, I don't think that you hate me, do you? Oh, no, no, I don't hate you. And I said, well, I can tell you this, I don't hate you, I love you. And I said, we disagreed in there, but that doesn't mean I hate you. Oh, I understand, Mike. But I'm thinking, you know, so many times that's not what the perception is out in the media and on social media today. Um, so, here's the point. We as Christians must never forget that Biblical Christianity, listen to this, believes in a free market of ideas. Why? Because, because we believe in our product. You know, in order for us to have everybody liking and buying our hamburger, what do we need to do? I think we need to shut down all the other hamburger joints so there's only one hamburger out there. Do you think my hamburger will taste better if I know I don't have any competition? Who gives a rip? You ain't got nowhere else you can buy a hamburger. But there's 10 other places selling hamburgers. I'm going to have to work. And because I believe my hamburger is the best, I'm not worried about the other guys. All the other guys are going to do is just prove my hamburger's better when you taste that piece of trash they're cooking. I mean, think about it. I mean, if if you're good and you you got it, then it's just like in politics. You know, if if you're doing the right thing and you're honest, I don't have a problem with you shining the light on me. Because if you shine the light on me, all it's going to do is prove that what I said was true. And just keep on shining because I want you to believe the truth. And so Christians, we're not saying that you can't say this or do this. Do this. And we definitely are concerned about health and public safety. I think that's a general, I think that goes across all religions and all beliefs. We, we definitely would, would agree with that, part, with that part. But here's what I want you to see. I, I believe the gospel wins out. Uh, we don't have to keep others from the table of ideas. We just want a seat at the table and we want to defend, let, let truth defend itself. And so that's one of the things when Dr. White hired me that I understood from him that he wanted me to do in representing Georgia Baptist. I mean, I hear people all the time. And I tell you, that Mike Griffin down there, boy, he don't represent what I do. That Mike Griffin don't represent Baptist for me. 
And I'm like, well, have you ever been to the George Bass Convention? Well, I'll go every now and then. I said, well, have you ever passed, voted on a resolution? Well, I said, yeah, well, that's what I do. I go down there, and I have those resolutions there. Uh, and I stand there, and now if I don't have a resolution, it's just something biblical or something that the Baptist Faith and Message has. Uh, and whatever, I work out of the executive director's office. So Thomas Hammond is my new boss. So I, I do what Thomas tells me to do because Thomas is the executive director of the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. But we're there not to represent me and Thomas, represent the Georgia Baptist Convention when it meets once a year and it expresses itself on these issues. And you know what? Every Georgia Baptist church has a right and a responsibility to send, send a messenger down there so that when these resolutions come up, and we take stands on traditional marriage or gambling or alcohol or pornography. You vote. So this is what Baptists believe. Well, when I go to the Capitol, I'm sitting in front of a Senate hearing or a House hearing in front of 15, 20 people in a room packed. I sit down there. I'm Mike Griffin. I represent the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. And here's a resolution. And I want to explain to you what Georgia Baptists believe. So you've got a representative there. And then when I do that, they look around thinking, wow, that's 1.4 million people. Uh, up to 3,600 churches. We might have listened to what he's got to say. You know, my, my, again, I would have a problem if schools had a week, call it Religious Week, and bring somebody in from wherever they are. I mean, if somebody believes in Martians, let them come in there and just give them 30 minutes, 20 minutes in assembly. Share it out there. And then let me get there and share the gospel. You know, when the ark was taken and captured and they put it in a room full of a bunch of idols, they came back the next day and they just all fell on the floor and busted apart. You know, I, I'm just saying, I mean, God, I mean, when you have God, there really is no competition. <laughs> I mean, the scripture says, you know, if God be for you, who be against you? Yeah. You know, had a guy got voted out of church one time, said it was 160 something. But anyway, it was against him. But, but I'm talking about. The against in that sense means who, who can really make a difference. If you're sharing the truth of the gospel and that doesn't convince people with the power of the Holy Spirit, which is always a part of the gospel, then you and I don't have anything else that we can do other than to pray. And I don't mean that in a in a nonchalant way. I'm just saying we don't. In other words, we don't have to stifle other messages to win out. Um, we don't have to cheat to win, is what I'm saying. The other side wants to do that, though. They want to shut you down. They don't want your voice there. They don't like me sitting at a hearing. They don't want you voting. They, they don't want you to be a part of that. The other side doesn't want that. They, uh, they're threatened by what other people believe. But truth defends itself. And, and the reason is, is that when we talk about biblical Christianity, it's not advanced by coercion, but rather by persuasion. Persuasion is different than coercion. Persuasion confronts the will, while co coercion forces and manipulates the will and the emotions to believe something. Listen, Christianity doesn't have to coerce because our proof is in the product, which is not a product. It's a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and again, we need to remind one another that pluralism is not the same as relativism. In other words, um, 
we're not saying that just because you have a right to speak that you're right when you do speak. Therefore, the gospel does not require us to stop others from speaking. We don't have to have censorship. And then we go to the fifth point. And that is the fifth and final fact. And that has to do with the responsibility of religious liberty. And that is biblical Christianity requires that we stand up for religious liberty. And that's where we go back to the point we looked at a few moments ago in 1 Chronicles 32.12 where he says they knew what to do. And so, you see, we, we do have to understand that this right of religious freedom will not prevail if we don't defend it. I mean, let me ask something. Did, uh, you know, did, uh, let's see if I got it. Did, when we said we wanted this country to be free, did, did England say, well, here, here's the keys, take it. You mean, you mean they didn't give it to us? You know, it, it people gave their lives. I mean, if you've got sons and daughters and aunts and uncles and cousins who have died in Afghanistan and Iraq, Vietnam, Korea, World War II, World War I, I mean, just go way back. We're still not free without people dying. I mean, we didn't get set free without Jesus dying on the cross. It's free but it wasn't cheap. <laughs> and the same way about religious freedom. So, biblical Christianity demands that we take a stand and that we not take it for granted. And so, why should we stand up for religious liberty? I thought you'd never ask. Number one, we as Christians are citizens of two kingdoms. You know, there's a sense in which every one of us, if you're saved here today, has a green card. You're just passing through. This ain't your home. You may have built you a place, got you a farm, got your retirement and life insurance and all that, but you do have life insurance, don't you? Yeah. But you ain't staying. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it, we just like an old dog, ain't we? Something's going to get it. If heartworms don't get us, we're going to get run over. <laughs> I mean, yeah, heartworms, I mean, if you don't get run over, heartworms are going to get you. I mean, the only reason you don't get heartworms is because you get run over first. I mean, it's just... You and I, we're all going to die. We're going to die. Even God heals us. Something's going to get us. And Jesus said, don't worry, because I've taken the sting of death out. I go and prepare a place for you. Where I am there, you might be also. In my Father's house are many mansions. It wasn't true I told you. I mean, that's pretty good stuff. But, we're, but listen, seeing that this is true, that didn't keep Paul from using his right as a, as a Roman citizen to justify his preaching the gospel on earth. Listen, Paul used his citizenship as a platform. Now, this year I wrote an article in the Christian Index that my responsibility at the Capitol, first and foremost, is to be a missionary before I'm a lobbyist. That, that's the whole thing. That's the whole purpose. Paul used his citizenship. He, he, he demanded his Roman citizen rights when he was mistreated by the court and was not justly treated when he was apprehended and jailed. And when they found out he was a Roman citizen, they all flipped out. Oh my, I can't believe, why didn't you tell us that? And he continued to appeal his case all the way to Rome and he said, listen, I'm going to go right to Rome and to Caesar's court and share the gospel. 
you know what? That gave him a free ticket to Rome. Paid his meals, his, his, his uh, ship ride over there, got bit by a snake. I mean, you know, he did the whole thing. It was, a, it was a great experience. I mean, you know, but really, it, it took, him all, took him all the way up there, free of charge, to share the gospel. Eventually, it cost him his head, according to tradition. But he's like, hey, I'm, I'm here for the Lord anyway. So if this is true about Paul in Rome, now Rome was no bastion of religious liberty. And in Rome, it wasn't we the people. You were not the government in Rome. The emperor was the, you know, that he was, you know, Caesar was, was the head of government. That's, uh, that's under a, a terrible, tyrannical rule. Paul didn't think he was so spiritual that he couldn't get involved as what we would call today. Now, hang on, you're fixing to fall back when I say this. He didn't think he was too spiritual to get involved in politics. <laughs> you know what politics is, don't you? It's poly meaning many ticks, bloodsuckers. You know. <laughs> you know. But politics is not wicked or evil. It's the people to get involved in it to make it that way. Right? It's, really, if you take the word politic and boil it down to what it means to us biblically, it comes down to one word. You're right, it's not in the notes. Influence. It's called influence. What are you using your influence for? Yourself? Your own pocketbook? I tell people the capital that's run by a 4G network. I'm not talking about cell service now. Gold. No offense. Gals. Glory. And games. Gold. Filthy lucre. Gals. Sexual immorality. Glory. Narcissism. Let somebody call you Mr. Chairman 50 times a day, you can't even get your head through the door. Right. And playing games. Politics. Playing games with, I'll vote for you if you'll vote for me. I'll vote for your bill if you'll vote for my bill. If you'll give me some money, get in my campaign account. If you help me get elected, I'll help you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Games. That's the same thing to destroy a preacher. If a preacher gives in to any one of those four things, he will lose his influence in a way that God wants them to have it. So remember, the first three words of the Constitution are very simple. We the people. Uh, we are the government. It's not the responsibility that we blame others. Uh, when I used to play tag as a little kid, when you tagged the other person, what would you say? You're it. You're it. Okay, when we talk about what's wrong with government, you're it. And I don't mean that to offend you. I'm just saying, if it says we the people... And you one of the people. But what does God say in 2 Chronicles 7.14? What's the first three words of 2 Chronicles 7.14? If, well, if my people. So if my people will be we the people, it make a difference. And let me tell you something. I don't mean this in a derogatory term, but God knows we need some influence in government. Because we take that kind of influence out of government and put the wicked influences in the government, well, we're going to get what we got. Just turn on your TV when you go home this afternoon. That's exactly what we're getting. We're getting our government. And I'm going to say this to y'all. We're not getting it all because we're not for God. We'd already be gone. God tells us so many times, don't take my patience as approval. Just because I ain't wiped you off the map yet doesn't mean I agree with what you're doing. I'm just I'm being loving. That's what John, John said. Ah, 
Hey, Gummin, I knew you were a God that relented concerning calamity. I knew you were patient. You are loving. That's why I didn't want to go to the Ninevites. I just knew, show us the world. They might repent and you'd bless them. And I didn't like them. I didn't want them to hear the gospel and get saved. I wanted them to go to hell. That's what I thought of them so much. I mean, really, that's basically that's the Mike Griffin, South Georgia version of, of Jonah. What he didn't do. And God said, no, no, I, I want you to go. And so the example that sticks out in my mind uh, the most on this, I've already given you three others, unfortunately, but we ha- have Jesus in front of the pile. Now what does Jesus in front of Pilate represent? Okay, Jesus. That's us, the citizens. Pilate, what does he represent? The government. And we love bonding with Jesus. And I do too. I'm all about Jesus. I like that. But you know what? In our nation, you're not only Jesus, you're Pilate. You're not, you're not there being persecuted by government. If we stand back and don't... What's the title of this point? Responsibility of religious liberty. Biblical Christianity requires that we stand up for it. God is going to hold you accountable for the persecution of Christians in this country because you are part and parcel to the reason why Christians like you are going to be persecuted then. We would be mad with somebody like Hitler... Because what he did to the Jews. Well, you know what? Hitler is the one that is going to answer for that. He wasn't in a country that you could do differently. Although he did neutralize the church and pastors, telling them they needed to take care of the church while he took care of the heart and soul of Germany. That really worked out six million Jews later. Um, But in in our country, we have a responsibility. And you're like, well, what is that responsibility? Well, uh, to love, pray, share the gospel. But we talk about a direct citizen responsibility. Let me. Let, this is not in your PowerPoint. This is not on the notes. It's just, hey, this is free. You're getting this free with the class. When's the class supposed to be over with anyway? Uh, 2.45? Uh, let, let me give you some responsibilities of a Christian. Just, this is something that I, I actually stood in the pulpit. I, I preached this in an associational meeting. They had me come preach a, a message on Christian citizenship. I said, the first thing you need to do as far as your involvement in government, number one, register to vote when you turn 18. If you're not registered to vote, that's just like, and I'm not for horse racing, but if you're into horse racing, uh, you're not going to get out of the gate and run until you get in the gate. I mean, you got to, you know, you're not, you're not even... Vote. Number two. Uh, number one, register to vote. Number two, vote. No good if you're registered if you don't vote. And let me give you a third thing vote for the right person. There's only one thing worse than not voting. Vote for the wrong person. How do you vote for the right person? You have to know. How do you know? You have to search. You have to study. I tell people, the, if, you, if this represented the pulpit, this is the most influential position in the United States, more important than social media, more important than Fox News. And there's close to 3,600 pulpits in the state of Georgia that call themselves Baptist pulpits. In a loving, non-threatening, bipartisan way, just share the truth of what it means to be a Christian citizen in the United States of America. You don't have to tell people how to vote. But you know what you do? You need to inform them on what the issues are. And then you need to have access so they can go study what the candidates believe. And you don't have to tell them who to vote for. They'll just look and say, well, I don't believe that. 
Is this candidate pro-life? Oh, check him off. I know I'm not voting for somebody that's not pro-life. I mean, I'm just saying, you just begin to see that. Uh, one of the things that pure politicians hate is an informed electorate. They want you dumb, happy, and just keep sending you pork. So that you just keep squealing and having a great time because you they're taking care of my district and you know, that's it. And so we don't know what they're doing, but they're helping him. They're helping me. One of the things I like that uh, that y'all did in one of the past elections is there was this set of questions that was asked to different candidates. Right. We took it some criticism for it, that. It, yeah. It wasn't swaying. It was just asking information. Right. It was put out there. Right. And a matter of fact, that and that, that if y'all aware that every church in the Georgia Baptist Convention was sent a packet of voter guides and it's up to the preacher in that church to give them out to the congregation about a month before the election and you know what those those guides were so accurate that two years ago when they were given out in North Carolina by Faith and Freedom Coalition the left used them in other words we're not ashamed of what that we believe in you know basically abortion anytime we're not ashamed that we believe in raising taxes we're not a Shane and that we believe in, you know, and government-run health care. But that is what we believe. They use it to motivate their side to go vote with. So, I mean, that just shows how bipartisan it really was. It was not for Republicans, not for Democrats. Exactly. Just here's what the issues are, and you know, if it if it lands right here, and that's what the people believe, then they'll know they need to go vote for this person. But look, almost all y'all in here, you either are or know somebody or whatever. You're working 70 hours a week. Hey, I work two jobs. I'm a full-time pastor and basically work full-time job with a convention. Most people working 70 hours a week and they just trying to put tennis shoes on the baby's feet and peanut butter on the sandwiches. And everything else is moving from here to there. And you don't have time to sit around, drink beer, smoke cigarettes, and watch the internet all day long figure out what's going on. That's no offense to anybody. I'm just saying... I'm just not sitting around just playing on the internet all day long. Don't have I got a job. I want a job. I got two jobs. I got three jobs. I'm trying to take care of my family. So you need somebody you can come to. I don't care if it's me or Donald Duck or, or Mickey Mouse. That's your public affairs representative. I want to find out what does Mike Griffin think or what does Georgia Baptist think? What's public affairs think? Well, I mean, help me. I need to go somewhere that I trust. That I can find some, and that's hard to do. You, we think, is it Fox? Is it CNN? You know, but again, if you you can't, you got to read all that with some some sense of discernment. Again, the pulpit, the Word of God. We believe in the priesthood of the believer as Baptist. Each of us have a personal relationship with God. We don't have to go through no preacher, no church, no pope, no nothing. We go straight to Jesus. We pray about it. Go to the meetings. Attend the forums. Uh, go to the, I mean, when I was in Lenox over here pastoring, I went to city council meeting one night. And uh, they had a break, go to the bathroom, get something to drink. And uh, one of the council, that was a lady, came up to me. No, she was the clerk uh, of the council. And she came to me and said, why are you here? I said, because I'm a citizen. It's like a calf at a new gate looking at me like, what are you even doing in here? They think a preacher didn't come down unless he's raising cane about liquor or something. I mean, why is he even down here? I said, you know what? I preached this 
a message last Sunday on Christian citizenship and it's responsibility to every citizen to be involved in government even if they're not elected and I'm just here doing my job well so well good we welcome you glad to have you here and I'm, I think I was the only person sitting out there in the room and they went in and conducted their business that night but I'll tell you another thing we all should be willing to run for public office men, women, preachers deacons you know, we need to do a you know, an Isaiah 6. Here am I, Lord, send me. I'm willing. You know, I'll do it. I had I said this in the class last night, and some guys, oh man, you don't, they don't want me. <laughs> I'd be such a troublemaker. I said, well, you know, whatever, pray about it, but you know, you are, you do have a responsibility to be in that. And then, as Christian, we have a relationship with God uh, that is personal, but it's, but it's personal, but it's not private. And the reason that is, is we have a declaration to share. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 of the Great Commission. But not only do we have a declaration that we're to go out and to share the gospel. Look at, don't you? Look at this right here. We have a demeanor to share it out of. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. So God has capacitized us to carry the payload of the gospel. And God was unique in the way He chose to do this. He wanted other people, He wanted people to tell other people how to be saved from people who have been saved themselves. I mean, if you like a certain kind of car, buy a certain kind of car from a certain car dealership, who is the best person if you were a car dealer to get somebody to come to your car dealership and buy a car? Somebody that bought a car. And secondly, they're satisfied. I bought four Nissan Altimas in the last eight years from Athens Nissan. They love me down there. And I, break them, I take them two cases of tea just about every time I go. There's a thing called peach tea. Joe's, it's called Joe Peach Tea from New Jersey and the Mennonites have it up in Hartwell. Don't get me started. It's the crack cocaine of, of peach tea. If you just take one sip, it's on like Donkey Kong. I mean, you are hung in there. We're not talking about it. I took it down there to some of those guys and they drank it sometimes and now they all, when I come, they give me a $20 bill if I give them a case of that tea. Anyway, what has this got to do with it? <laughs> Demeanor. You know. Um, anyway, all right. What am I talking about? I totally got off the deal here. So the fact is we have a risen Lord. That's why, it can't, that's why Jesus can't stay hid. He's not in the grave no more. Therefore, there is no such thing as a privatized gospel. There's no such thing as secret agent Christianity. By our very nature, it can't be that way. Now, here's what I want you to see. What's the real goal of religious persecution? It is trying to silence the gospel. You know, we, we all this stuff going out, LGBT and religious liberty and all this stuff we're fighting over. The other side trying to shut us down. You know, we're upset with you because you won't have an LGBT bathroom. It ain't about the bathroom. It's about trying to shut the church down with the gospel. I mean, that's what this whole issue comes down to. 
And it's amazing that the devil, in many ways, and his crowd, fears the gospel more than the people who've been saved respect it. Because they really believe that the gospel is powerful. And the last thing we want is somebody here running around telling people how to get saved. And that's what they really want to shut down. And that's why I take you to this book written by Janet Folger back in, in, I don't know, I think it was around 2005, 2006. This is on the jacket of the book, and it says, As a Christian in this country, you may understandably be reluctant to speak out on moral issues like abortion, homosexuality, and pornography. I mean, think about it. I mean, you're not really fired up. I have to go out and get into those issues. But listen to this. But while we have a right to remain silent, that's not what God called us to do. Why? Because if the world can silence truth, it'll silence the gospel of truth. So here's here's a point I want to close with. Abortion, homosexuality, and pornography. Think about it. If those are not three sins that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of, and then to give us the power to overcome them, then why do we need the gospel? Now, now here's the deal. You and I will never convince people to put on parachutes who do not believe the plane is going down. These things help us to understand that we need a parachute. Because if we don't put on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to crash and burn one day. These sins are taking us down. Jesus says, I want to take you up. And so that's what this is all about. That's, I mean, that's the whole purpose of this class. Religious liberty and the gospel. Missions. Evangelism. That's what it's all about. And so the point comes to this. Any defense of the truth, even if it's talking about those moral issues, will eventually lead to a defense of the gospel. Look here, here's the point. If the gospel's not true, if God did not come down in the form of His Son, die on the cross for our sin, buried on the third day, rose again, and ever lives to make intercession for us if we will trust Him as our Lord and Savior, if that message is not true, I'll be honest with you, I'd commit suicide. I mean, well, what else is to stay here for? Eat, drink, and be merry and die because there ain't nothing coming afterwards. There ain't nothing. But listen, if the gospel is true, that message I just told you is true, it determines whatever else is true. But if the gospel's not true, nothing's true. You can be Peter Singer and say, well, ain't nothing wrong with bestiality then. If there ain't nothing right, there ain't nothing wrong then. If there ain't nothing wrong, there ain't nothing right. It's just every man do what's right in his own eyes. If you can get away with it, do it. Doesn't matter. That's what I'm saying. When we're standing on these issues, William Carey, when he was in India, again, it's not on your notes. When he went over there, he preached against and and advocated in the British Parliament against euthanasia, against uh, the the killing of uh, when when a when a husband would die and his wife was still alive, they'd burn her. He preached against that. Uh, they would take lepers and others who were people who were elderly and just they would just take them down to the waterside and let the crocodiles eat them. He advocated against all that kind of stuff. Why? So 
people our day say, we're going to be preaching about that. We need to win people to Jesus. You know what? I've been to India 12 times. I've preached in William Carey Memorial Church and taught in Calcutta Bible College a week at a time. Indians will accept any God because they believe in billions of gods in Hinduism. Let's tack Jesus on the end. Matter of fact, I had a woman tell me, said that we Indians like the American God because he's the God of wealth. And so they just tack Jesus on with all the other gods. I believe that William Carey believed that he had to differentiate the God of the gospel from the God of Hinduism. And the God of the gospel did not condone the killing of innocent human life. So if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you won't ever live that way anymore. This is not the same God. You know what I believe? He laid a foundation then to preach the true gospel. And so it, 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 his standing on those moral issues made him a stronger advocate when he preached the gospel. Uh, we don't see that today. And we've got to do it in a way that's not derogatory. We can't beat people up. Nothing wrong with shearing the sheep. God didn't call you to cut them and bleed them and all that kind of stuff. As Christians, we have a responsibility to protect the freedom of future generations. And you know the story about Naboth and King Ahab. He wanted to go buy that vineyard and he wouldn't sell it. And finally, just kept on at him. And finally, he said, why will you not sell that thing to me? He said, man, hey, I can't give up my inheritance. I want to give up my inheritance. I don't give up mine. That's five of my six grandbabies. And they're looking at me. Generations are looking to me. The scripture says if we don't love the people, if, if, if we don't love the people we see every day, let's start with our grandbabies and our children. How are we convince people that we love a God we ain't never seen? We never laid eyes on God. Well, he said, you don't have to. You see other people who created my image, you need to be loving them. And I'm saying, if we don't care about our grandbabies, well, we might as well go ahead and check out. I mean, I don't want them to look around. And I, I, I wonder what kind of world am I going to give them? And I tell people that my age and older who grew up with parents who came out of the Great Depression, my parents grew up saying, you know, we want you to have a better life than we had. And I knew that meant economics. I knew it went the whole ball away. My parents didn't come to know Christ, I think, until they were after 20. But the bottom line is, if you and I look around, and we're not going to say to our grandbabies, we're going to give you a better America than we had, if you can't say that, man, you better roll up your sleeves and get to work. Because if you really say you love those kids, how can you let government be doing what it's doing and say, well, I'm, I'm just going to sit over here and just kind of find my own business and then watch your kids go down the stream one day. And they're already doing it. They're already going that way. Which brings to the last slide. Remember the founding fathers. They gave their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor to start this country. Now who in the world in their right mind believes that it'll take anything less than those three things to preserve our country? You'll never preserve the United States until we have people willing to give their life, their fortune, and their sacred honor. They give their whole reputation just a stamp of what's right. They don't care what other people think. I'm going to do the right thing. I don't care how much money it costs me. I'm going to do the right thing. Uh, it says in the book of Revelation, 
that they love not their lives to the death. Those those saints that came out, they're willing to um, their testimony, the blood of Christ. Hey, they gave it all. That's what God's calling us in order to stand up for religious liberty. You've got to be willing to suffer, says in Peter. And then here's the problem. We've met the enemy. Say, so we get to thinking, if it's all those perverted individuals that we would call derogatory names of, when they get right with God, we'll get straight. But you know, God said in the Old Testament, if my people, which are called by my name, if they will humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways, seek my face, then I'll heal you. So I think it's all incumbent upon us to get right with God, to walk right with God as we ought to, to make a difference. Let me pray with us. And we got, you know, I finished, you know, three or four minutes before time. I'll tell you what, I'll open up for any questions. I don't want to waste any time on y'all. I just want to say one thing. That as as background, um, both of my sons are cops and my daughter-in-law is a cop. Wow. Um, Blue bloods. I don't think, I, 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 really, I really disagree with the statement that they stand back and do nothing. Yeah. When you when you said that with all the persecution and stuff, beating people up, the cops stand back and do nothing. No, no, I mean, there are some cases. There are some cases, but uh, in general, I think No, they do they, not. They yeah. do not not do something. I, I didn't mean to say it that okay, way. I must have misunderstood. But no, no, we're seeing some it. cases, we're seeing some cases now of uh-huh. recent where... Uh, the police are letting protesters beat other people up. They've not been intervening. But no, that's not a rule. Yeah, I was going to say. No, 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 no. No, I agree with that. No, they put their lives on the line. But we're seeing some cases today where it's not that the police are not doing it. It's the officials over the police are not enforcing the law. No, they're not letting them go out and stop the protesters. I misunderstood. No, no, no. I, I don't that mean that. Like, I was a. Uh, talk about my kids. No, 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 no. I've been a police chaplain for ten years, uh, and so I've spent a lot of time with cops, uh, riding around with them. And no, no, no. I'm, I'm 100 on that. I'm saying that uh, the authorities that are over are not allowing the officers to do their to job do because that's not in their nature to not do it. I agree with you on that. One of the things you were talking about with uh, elected officials and things like that, you know, some people don't feel like they need to be running, and that's okay. But how is your connection with the person who is in office? That's right. Our our Always, you know, contact send them. There you email. go. And don't don't and don't you know. I know don't I'm extreme. That's right. You don't need to cuss them out, fuss yeah. them out, be ugly, rude. Um, and and one of the things we're going to do, we have a pastor public affairs train going to be in Perry and one up in Woodstock. We've been doing it for about three years. They've not been very publicized. But what we do is bring pastors in and we bring in legislators and me and some other people and we try to teach pastors on how to develop relationships with legislators so that they build a relationship with them, invite them to their church, go out to eat with them, um, and contact them to ask them, what can I pray for you about? 
what's going on in your family. And then when they're leaving the Capitol and they got 15 voicemails of people that need something and they look through their list, when you got 15 voicemails, who's are you going to listen to first? I bet you're going to listen to people that you're the closest to and love. Yeah. Starting with your children, your wife, and all that you work with. And, and that's the same way with these state reps. They don't know you, and you call them, you're going to be way down on the bottom of the pole if they ever get to you. And I'm not saying you're just doing this to use them. I'm saying do it because you really do care about them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, like I said, you know, I, I've sent some emails to some of our representatives and senators, and it, sometimes it wasn't even about issues coming up. It was about, hey, you've got a tough job. I appreciate what you do. I just want that to makes a difference. for you. Yeah. And you know, it, that means the world because I remember you telling you know, about <coughs> how hard it is at the state capitol. Yeah. You know, our, our congressmen and you know, those people trying to stick to their, uh, you know, their Christian beliefs. I mean, it's Satan's throwing that things out there time to time. They need to know that you're they standing need, with them. Yeah, they need that support. That's the thing I've tried to share with our governor that I love and appreciate. And I just say, you know, we're going to. You do the right thing. We're gonna be there with you. Yeah. We're here for you all the That's time. That's what I said. I hope he stands his ground about this child, this life thing, and that stuff. Oh yeah, I well he has. So, so afraid that he's yeah. gonna let the movie stuff and that back him in right. the corner and that. And I, I just pray that the Lord gives him strength just to right. stand up to the wall. That's true. One thing I've done with. Um, with our elected officials is that I will research and a candidate that I want to support or volunteer to help in their campaign. That's another idea that you would uh, add in there. Help, help them. Help them with Give money, knock on doors, uh, put up a yard sign. Summer when it's hot. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, that's <laughs> what I tell them is it's very discouraging. Um, I, I have a list of reasons why People don't get involved, and one of those reasons is cynicism, because for those of us who have got involved, mm -hmm. who believed in a candidate, gave money, mm -hmm. knocked on doors, put up yard signs, handed out pamphlets, got them elected, and then they got there and did, didn't do what they said you do. And, and, and it don't take but once or twice of that, and you have a Johnny Paycheck moment. I mean, you just said, I'm done, stick a fork in me, I don't give a rip tater chip. But you know what, it's just like cancer, and I've had four surgeries. Uh, you leave it alone, it typically don't get better. And the same way with our nation, I know it's bad when they do that. And I just try to tell them, you know, you need to do what you say you're going to do because you're talking about you need support. Well, it's hard for me to get support when they feel like you betrayed them. And, just, and it happens over and over and over again. Uh, I mean, you just, you're just done. You're, you're, you, don't have, you only got so much time and money and effort, and you put it into somebody, they're not going to do what they say they're going to do. But it's yeah. you know, like you said, you know, taking a stand. It's Christians taking a stand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's taking a stand to show support and taking a stand against things that are going wrong. Well, I think that we have to get to a point in that stuff. If we stand up for somebody and stand behind them, and they don't live up to what they're saying, then we need to vote them out the next time and put somebody else in. That's true. And that's what I did. I mean, I helped um, when I was with Georgia Right Life. I was on their pack. And so if we had people that felt like they didn't keep their word, 
um, you know, I, I rode around their district and met and tried to get somebody to, or support somebody to run against them. And you know, that's why some of them don't like me. But that's that's what I, I don't do that with Georgia Baptist anymore. But that, you know. So let me pray for y'all and let you run. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us together and opportunity to share all these important issues. Lord, we desire your wisdom. Uh, your word says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of you. So, Lord, we, we desire your wisdom, discernment about how to go about this to make a difference now for you and for the gospel in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much. Y'all are, are very tolerant.